Last week, I was out talking to people on the streets about Jesus. Can you believe that? I was out talking about Jesus, and frankly, this has grown to be one of my very favorite times of the week. I go out a handful of times each week. I normally go down to Millennium Park because people tend to kind of just be sitting around doing not much in the park, and I like to start spiritual conversations with them. I had a fascinating conversation with a group of three friends this last week. One of them, uh, the second one, I started with a wonderful woman named Zoe. She didn't know it, but her name meant life. Zoe means life, and I got to tell her that her name literally means when Jesus says, I am the way, the Zoe, and the truth, the life and the truth. We had a great conversation. But the second young man, very interesting, he self-defined himself as a postmodernist. Now, I didn't know that was something you could self-define yourself as. I never heard someone say, this is my religion, postmodernism. But I know about postmodernism. It's a philosophy. It's a way of seeing the world and, and thinking about how things fit together in the world. And postmodernism believes that there is no truth. Everything is true to each person. Each person can determine what is true for them, and nobody can say anything is more true than any other person's personal beliefs. And I know that that is a failed worldview that fundamentally does not stand up to the real world that we live in. And so I got to engage in this hour-long conversation with this young man. And I challenged him on his worldview. I said, let me ask you something. I said, if there is no such thing as absolute truth or absolute morality, what do you say to the Nazis? Because based on your worldview, an entire society came together and said it is a good and just thing to murder the Jewish people because of their ethnicity. I said, what do you say to them? Was that good and justifiable? This young man thought about it for a second. And he said, if they thought it was good, then it was good. Because no one can tell anybody else what is good and true. I said, let me push on you even further. This was a young African-American man. I said, in this country, we legalized slavery in the worst form, including man-stealing, which is considered an abomination in Scripture. I said, do you believe that the American slavery, which was justified because a whole group of people came together and said, this is a good thing. We all agree. This is a good thing. And it was the minority in the South who was saying this is a bad thing. And so this is a good thing. Would you say that that was a good and justifiable thing? Now, I had kind of pigeoned him into a corner a little bit. But I could see him, he took a little extra time with that one. And then he came back and he was so stubborn he couldn't change his mind. He said, yeah, that was a good thing. If they thought it was good, then it was good for them. I said, you know, it's a very dangerous thing when we start calling what is truly evil a good thing. I said, let me tell you about what Jesus has to say about this. I got to share the gospel with this man, got to share what scripture says about the dignity and the worth and the value of every person, no matter your creed, color, or country, that, that we are all made in the image of God and that there are things that are evil and wicked. Why? Because God says so. That's how we know. That's where the justification for all morality and evil comes from. What a fascinating conversation that was as I got a chance to share the gospel with this young man who had a false worldview. Now, how do you determine what is right and wrong in terms of morality? When I tell that story, it's easy to look at that young man and say, hey, well, he just, he was so far off. But I think sometimes we drag, uh, to be honest with you, postmodernism into our uh, version of Christianity that we choose to create for ourselves. How do you determine what is right and wrong? How do you determine what is morally good and what is morally not good? 
How, how do you lean into that conversation with friends when you're having conversations, which frankly in our day and age happen every day because of the news cycle that we're in? How do you begin to navigate what is good, what is not good? How ought we to live our lives? What is pleasing to God? It's tough, isn't it? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we drag in that little lie that says what is good and what is true is what we each say is good and true. To be honest with you, there was a time in the Bible when that happened. That was called the book of Judges, when there was no king and everyone did what was pleasing in their own sight. And we've already studied that book together as a church, verse by verse, and we know that was the closest thing to hell on earth since the days before Noah. It's not good. Today we dive into likely the most familiar passage in the Old Testament. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Exodus, and today we come across the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, these amazing laws that God gave to govern His people, where He said, this is what is good, this is what is true, anything other than this, if you deny this, it is not good, this is what I'm calling my people to. And my fear, to be honest with you, with the Ten Commandments is that these have become so overly familiar to us that we've stopped seeing the majesty and the beauty and the power in texts like these where we're so familiar with them because we've seen them a thousand times. I want to breathe new life into it today. I want to get you excited about the Ten Commandments today, and I want to show you how your Christian faith speaks into these Old Testament moral codes. So if you got your Bibles, jump into Exodus chapter 20 with me, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, the Ten Commandments are in Exodus chapter 20. And I believe it should be on page 60 and 61 of your house Bibles. Let's set the scene. That's what chapter 19 is all about, setting the scene for the giving of the law to Moses. Let's jump into chapter 19, verses 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. Now, let me pause for a second. Remember, God's people have been delivered out of slavery. They're now wandering around the land of Egypt through the Sinai Peninsula area, maybe throughout the land of Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. They're wandering around, and they're before this mountain waiting for instruction from the Lord. And on the, thir- on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, just imagine that for a second. Sometimes, you know, we read these Old Testament stories, or even New Testament stories, and we forget these are people, just like you and me. They have fears like you and me. They have moments of cowardice like you and me. They have moments of courage like you and me. They bled like you and me. How would you feel if you had just been delivered out of slavery, and now you're standing at the foot of this mountain? And it's shaking violently. And you know it's something to do with God. This is not just an earthquake and a volcanic eruption. You're, you're aware of the situation. God is about to do something phenomenal. The mountain is shaking. There's lightning. There's thunder. There's thick darkness. And an angelic trumpet, a trumpeter that you can't see, but you can hear it, is growing ever louder in your ears as he is preparing the way of the Lord to descend on the mountain to speak to his people. Would you have a little fear growing up inside of you? I would. So let's get into their mindset here. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp, verse 17, to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered them in thunder. In thunder. God is now speaking to them as this trumpet's getting louder and louder in thunder. I got to tell you, during the first service when I read that verse, I took a moment of a, to take a breath and what I believe was a loud thunder. It might have been the train going by, but it sounded like thunder boomed through this room and everyone took a sigh wondering what was taking place. I believe God gives us wonderful signs like that from time to time. The Lord said to him, I'm sorry, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So here's the scene. God's people before Mount Sinai, and they're waiting, and they're trembling in fear at this seeming almost volcanic eruption that's taking place, but it's not lava. It's fire that's descended because God has come down to speak promises and truth into his people. And they're so terrified that later on in this chapter, what they're going to do is they're going to stand back. And when Moses invites them near, they're going to stand back and they're going to say, no, 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 no. That is, we don't want anything to do with that. We're too scared to come into the presence of that. Moses, you go up that mountain and speak to God on our behalf and then come down and tell us what what God told you. Sometimes we have this, have to have this understanding of the fear of the Lord. And verses like this help us. God has drawn us near. Through Jesus Christ, we can have this personal, intimate, compassionate, meaningful, personal walk with God where it's so good and it's loving. But sometimes I think we forget that God is able to descend on a mountain in fire and when he comes in person, there is a trumpet blast that prepares the way of the Lord because he's the king of kings. God forbid we ever lose the fear of the Lord. We need to maintain that. We need to know who we're talking about. And then chapter 20 begins, and it begins with this preamble, much like our own constitution, set of laws begins with a preamble. This begins with a preamble, and God spoke all these words saying, here it is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now why is that important? Before he goes into these 10 commandments, these 10 laws, God roots them in grace. Did you see that? He's about to say, here's the law. This is what I expect of you. This is what's going to make you a unique people among all the peoples that you're going to come in contact with. But before you define yourself by how well you live up to a moral code, I want you to make sure you understand who you are. You're a people who have received grace upon grace. It was me who delivered you out of Egypt. It was me who saw you in slavery. It was me who who heard your cries when you were terrified. And it was me who brought you out and set you free. That was all grace. You didn't earn any of that. That was my free gift of grace giving to you. And then, once you've received grace, now I want you to know how you ought to live as a result of that. The law doesn't come first. Grace comes first. Grace fuels us to live in accordance with the law. Then he jumps into these Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments can be broken into two categories. It doesn't say this particularly in Scripture, but as we look at these Ten Commandments, there's kind of two categories. I call them the vertical and the horizontal. Five of the commandments, I think five, some people say four, I'll tell you why in a minute, but I think the first five of the commandments are vertical. They're between us and God. It tells you this is how you live in a right relationship with your God and Creator. The next five of the commandments tell you how to live in right relationship with your neighbor, with each other. Five are vertical between us and God, five are horizontal between us and our neighbor. Now the reason I say it might be five, might be four, The fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. 
Some people say that's a horizontal law between one another. I tend to think of the way we relate to our mother and father as a direct relationship with our heavenly father. I think that's a a direct implication of how we're worshiping God is how we treat our own mother and father because of the unique authority they play in our life. But it's either the first five are vertical or the first four are vertical. I'm going to go with the five. Let's go through these one at a time. First one, you shall have, verse two, three, no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that word before literally means in my presence. You should have no other gods in my presence. Don't even bring a sense of worship to any other god than the God of Yahweh, the God that's delivered you. That's the only God you ought to worship. And as you come in contact with all these other cultures and all these other gods of the nations around you, as you see them worshiping, false God after false God, gods who declare themselves to be something other than who I've declared myself to be, don't even let that in your presence. Don't entertain it for a second. That's what that first commandment means. Don't even entertain it. How easy as it is for us as modern day Christians to entertain worship of false gods. We think of idols and we have this conversation all the time. Idols are not just those statues that we find in some countries to false gods. We can just as easily worship our career. We can worship our money. We can worship our spouses and our kids. We are to have nothing that receives our worship outside of God, the one true God. Second one, don't bow to man-made things. That's not exactly what it says, but that's the kid's song that I've memorized. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. That's the second law, don't bow to man-made things, but then that one comes with a caveat. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. What does that mean? Real quick, before I explain this law, that God visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I want you to hear what this means. There's a thing called generational sin. I come from a family where every man for generations has been a deep alcoholic. Generations, third and fourth generation, in fact, beyond that. That's been broken in my line because of the blood of the lamb that was shed on my behalf. God's called me to something new. I was on that track, and then God got a hold of me. God breaks generational sin in our family's lives. That's what he's referring to here. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, why is that so important? Why would God make, don't make carved images so important? Keep in mind, he's not just referring to false gods. He's actually saying here, don't make me, Yahweh, into an image. Don't do that. Now, the reason that's important is because every time we make an image of God, we're choosing what characteristics and what qualities we want to accentuate and the qualities that we like about God that are easy for us to digest, and we're choosing then what qualities about God to leave out of that image. So, for every image that we make of God that shows off His power and His strength, it fails to show off His love and His compassion. For every image we make of God, statue of God that we make, where we try to say, this is what God is like. We've made this image that captures him and is showing his love and his compassion. It fails to show his justice and the wrath of God against sin. That's why God says, look, every time you make an image of me, you're making an, an image of God 
that you've determined what God's like. You've made me in your own image. You pick the pieces of me you like and you've left out the pieces of me you don't like. And God says, don't even entertain that. When you receive me, you don't receive me on your terms. You receive God on his terms because he's God and we're not. And God is very complex. He's got many qualities. Now, we still need to understand this in our day and age. How easy is it for us to go to God, say, I love this, this, and this about you. I've heard about those things in the Bible. Ah, But not this, this, and this so much. I love the love and compassion piece. That's great. Let's do that all day. Oh, but the judgment over sin piece, not a big fan of that. So I, I'm not even going to receive that. And what we're doing is we're, we're making an image of God. We're casting him in our image as we would like God to be, pretending like we can fashion God. But God can't be fashioned. God is God. And, and God tells us to receive him on his terms as he's declared himself to be because that's what's good for us. That's why he says he's a jealous God. He knows what's good for us. Like a jealous husband after a wandering wife. If a wife was to wander away to another husband, a jealous, good, loving husband would say, that's not good for you. I am what is safe. I am what's secure for you. Come back to me because I'm true for you. He's jealous for your heart. And he doesn't want you taking a half version of God. Third one, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Number three, let's read this together. Verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number three, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Now, why is that a big deal? Uh, It's become very commonplace. In fact, I'll tell you this, my little three-year-old daughter, Mira, one of my twin three-year-olds, I don't know where she picked it up. I'm going to blame one of your kids. (laughs) Kidding. She has started to say when something goes wrong, oh my, G-O-S-H. And she does this big, long G-O-S-H. It's long, but she says it. And I pull her aside and I say, hey, sweetheart, we don't speak like that in this house. We honor the Lord as holy in this house. And that is to take the Lord's name in vain. It's even to joke about taking the Lord's name in vain. is not funny. Now, why? Why? Because when we take the Lord's name in vain, what we're doing is we're taking this precious name of God that keep in mind the way in which the name of God was revealed to God's people in the book of Exodus. The name is what has the power. The name is what has the beauty. Yahweh. That's the name, Yahweh Elohim. That's the name of God. And so holy that for generations, the Jewish people wouldn't even whisper that name. They came up with other names to say it because it was too precious. We ought to hold that reverently. And when we use it as a curse word, We're basically saying, here's what I think about the name of the Lord. Let's treat it like we might as well throw it on the street and have a garbage truck run over it. That's about as much value as it has in my life. God says, you're going to be one of my followers. You love me. You hold that name above every other name, the only name that could ever save. You hold it reverently. Number four, keep the Sabbath day holy. This was one of two key markers for the people of God, the Sabbath day. Circumcision and keeping the Sabbath was one of the two key things that kept the Jewish people in the Old Testament totally distinct from every other nation. Of course, all the law did, but these were the two biggies. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days. How many days? Say it again, you seven-day workers. Six days. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Now, why do you think 
it was so important for God's people to celebrate a Sabbath. Let me read to you the preamble again. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What kind of people are able to celebrate a Sabbath, to take a day of rest? A free people. Slaves don't get to do that. We read about the story of their slavery, and we understood how hard and terrible their taskmasters were, and that when they asked for rest, they were actually given less straw, so that they had to hunt further and further for more straw. The workload was unbearable. It was inhumane. There was no rest. And then God delivered them out of slavery. See, this is tied to their narrative. It's tied to their story. Narrative is what drives the human life. Our narrative is that we have been taken out of slavery just as these Jews were taken out of physical slavery. And the mark of a free people is that they can rest. They can enjoy the pleasure of God and his creation, the pleasure of family and fun and life and rest and sitting on a cool day and sitting under the sun and knowing that God is good and letting that be enough for a day. Only free people can do that. The Sabbath is so important for the people of God. Now let's briefly go through these next six laws. I want to spend a little more time on these ones that relate to us and God because I think we are far more prone to break those directly as a modern church. I think they're just easier to skim over and think we're good, but really we're breaking them pretty much with every thought we have. Now let's briefly go through these next six. Number one, honor. This is verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days might be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I want you to know, those of you who are parents or uh, might be parents one day, this is how I discipline my children. I pull this out. I say, hey, when you disobey me, look at me, what does the Bible say? And Paul also, that was thunder this time, Brian. That was not the train. (laughs) Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, also references this and says, Children, listen and obey your parents that it might go well with you and you might live long in the land. So I pull my children up to me when they disobey. I say, hey, what does Ephesians 6 say? That's what I say. I'm teaching them. And they say, children, listen and obey your parents. And then I say, that's right. You listen and obey mom and dad so that it'll go well with you. And what do I do? And they say, you listen and obey Jesus. I say, that's right, I listen and obey Jesus, you listen and obey me, and as long as that chain stays good, things are going to go well for this family. And they're learning, we must listen and obey mom and dad because God's given parents as the authority to point them towards God. Next one, you shall not murder, pretty straightforward, good law. You shall not commit adultery, pretty straightforward, good law. You shall not steal, that one's pretty good too. Number 16, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's don't lie. All these are really good. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. This one we are really bad at. Let me read the whole thing to you. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his TV or his car or his career or his promotion or his network or his social media profile, or anything that he has. Did I get you yet? We are not to covet the things our neighbors have. Why is that? Because God invites us into a life of contentedness with the Lord. That's why. To live underneath the fullness of a God who says, I'm enough for you, is to live in a way that says, I have enough. 
And it's not to constantly be coveting that which we don't have, but it's to constantly be celebrating that which God in his grace and mercy has already provided for us. What more could we want? We've got the God of all mercy showering heaven on us, and we want our neighbor's car. God says, be content with what you got. Now, how do we relate to this as New Testament Christians? Where does Jesus fit into the Old Testament moral law? Next week, Noah is going to be opening up and talking about the civil and the ceremonial law. Many, many hundreds of laws of the Old Testament Jews were called to live underneath. Many of them you've heard many times before. But this moral law, how do we live underneath this? Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, was asked a question by a, a religious law keeper, what they call a, law, a lawyer, someone who knew this law inside and out. And in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40, it goes like this. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I love that. We're called to think rightly about God. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus is getting to the heart of the law here. He says there's two main commandments, that all the other laws, all the law and the prophets, and particularly the Ten Commandments fall underneath. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a good follow-up question would be, well, how do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind? What we would do is we go back to the, the first four commandments. We say, well, here's a good way. Don't bring in any other gods or worship into your life other than worship to the God of Yahweh, that first commandment. That's a great way to honor the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Don't make him into your own image, meaning don't take pieces of him that you like and pieces of him that you don't like, but worship the one true God. That's a great way to worship God. And so what he's doing is he's categorizing these commandments and saying, these are showing you the heart. Now, how about the other side? Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, how do we do that? Well, don't kill them. That's a, that's a really good starting place for loving your neighbor. Don't kill them. Uh, don't commit adultery with them. That's a good one. Don't steal from them. Don't lie to them. Don't covet their stuff. You do that, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Love your neighbor as yourself. And these all come from God. Notice if, let me, let me do a little apologetic, defending the Christian faith here for you. If someone comes into us and says, hey, I'm not a Christian, but I believe all the, like, not stealing from your neighbor and not murdering someone and not committing adultery are all good, and I'm getting that out of a secular worldview, that doesn't come out of a secular worldview. You can't get it out of a secular worldview, because in a secular worldview, there is no God, there is no higher law, and we're all free to do exactly as we choose. Only when we root ourselves in the Word of God do we understand that there is a higher objective law, which, if I could be honest with you, is what we all already know in our hearts. We already already feel that killing someone is wrong. It must come from an objective lawgiver who's given that law to us. Now, here's the main point. This is what I want us to take away from today. In the Old Testament, the laws were shadows pointing towards the substance the laws were shadows pointing towards the substance. They reflected off the shadow of the king. And as the sun beat down, just as if the sun were to beat down on me and create a shadow of me down here, that shadow is emanating off of me. It comes from me. It's not the fullness of me. It's just the shadow of me. And what the shadow is intended to do is to point you upwards to the substance. That's what the law is in the Old Testament. 
So is the law a good and wonderful thing? Absolutely. Are the Ten Commandments beautiful? Should we be listening to them? I totally think we should. It's God's moral law. I don't think it's changed. But it's just a shadow. We look at that shadow and then we look upwards to the substance to which they point towards Jesus, God in the flesh. He is the substance. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. He is what the law was always pointing towards and all about to begin with. And so the the shadow of the law is pointing us towards the substance of the law, Jesus in the flesh. And so if we want to know what is God's moral standard for my life, sure, we could look at the shadow. That's a great place to look. But there's no need anymore because the substance has come. All of those laws have now found their fullness in Jesus Christ. And when we look to him, we understand what the heart of those laws were to begin with. Let me give you two examples. Let me show you how this works. Let's go with the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Great law, very important in the Old Testament, hasn't changed a bit. We are to have no other gods before Yahweh. And yet, in the New Testament, we have some more information about that God. While it was hinted at, and while I could show you the Trinity in the Old Testament, we now have far more information about our Trinitarian God. And that Jesus was God in the flesh among us. And so how do I live out that first commandment? How do I have no other gods but God? By worshiping Jesus Christ. When I bring all of my worship and surrender all underneath Jesus Christ as God has presented himself to me and I bring no other gods into his presence, I'm not even going to entertain the other religions and the other gods because they are all far from the beauty and the majesty of the one true God. I keep them out of my life. That's how I live out that first commandment. The substance has come. So now I have further clarity. The shadow's not gone. Shadow's still there. It's just pointing me up towards the greater clarity I have in the substance. How about this one? Uh, Do not commit adultery. What is that, the sixth or seventh commandment? Don't commit adultery. Jesus explains to us what the substance of that was. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He gets right to the heart of the law. He says this, now you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There's the shadow of the law. Good law, we shouldn't be committing adultery. That's God's heart. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so shadow, good law. Substance reveals God's heart for what's underneath that law. And he says, if you look at a woman, you look at a man with a lustful, lustful eyes, you've already committed a violation of the commandment, do not commit adultery. See, God's after the heart. God wants you to know that underneath every one of these laws, every one of these moral codes, there's a heartbeat of God that says, this is what's good for my people. I don't want you to bring sin into your life. I want you to see what the heart of his is all about. The shadow points to the substance, which is Christ. The substance is a life of such nearness to God, such enjoyment of Jesus and his word and all that he has shown himself to be that Jesus could radically overtake a lustful heart like mine and give me eyes for one woman alone, my wife. That's what Jesus does. And Jesus is able to do that in your life too. See, none of these laws are fully followable as sinful, broken people. The Ten Commandments are beautiful, and every culture, every people should look at these and be able to say, those are good laws. They should be true of me as well. Though they were given to the Jewish people, they were intended to be a blessing to the nations, that the nations would know there is one true God. What's the point of all this? Why did God even give the Israelites these Ten Commandments? Historically, Christians have kind of thought about the Ten Commandments this way and how they apply. Number one, they can serve as a guide, as a guide. 
as a guide, they teach Christians what we should and shouldn't do in order to live a pleasing life to God. And so in some way, they're a guide. Here's how you honor God. They serve as a curb, meaning they curb the wickedness we might do. When we get wicked intentions in our heart and then we look at God's desires for our life, we're, our motivations are curbed as a child's motivation is curbed when they hear their parents' rules for their life. We do less wicked than we might do if the law had not come. But number three, and most importantly, they serve as a mirror. God's laws accuse us. They stand as an accuser over us, revealing our sin. This is what Paul means in Romans 7 when he says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if, I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. At the end of the day, God's law serves as a mirror. We read the law, and then we see the lawgiver himself and see the heart of the law and the Sermon on the Mount and all through the life of Jesus. And each one of us has that mirror over our life with an accusatory finger at us saying, you've broken it. And so if we were to stand before a just God on the day of our judgment, which every person will do one day, we would stand before God with the perfect law of Christ, which has been revealed because no one is without excuse, and we would stand there guilty because the law of Christ would point down at us and said, you did not live up. Your thoughts were wrong, your intentions were wrong, and you physically broke the commandments. In Luke chapter 8, we're told of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Jesus is using irony there. He's testing this man's heart to see what he thinks about Jesus because Jesus was God. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You'll notice Jesus really only talks about the horizontal ones there. He doesn't get to the first four, does he? He only talks about those ones that in some way are talking about our relationship to other people. This rich young ruler, a bit arrogantly, says, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now what's Jesus doing there? He's looking at a man who thought that he had lived up to the moral code that God's given us. He's looking at this guy who thought, I'm pretty good. And frankly, I'm pretty rich, which is like a double whammy. I'm doing good in all areas. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you want to know what the heart's all about? You want to know the substance of it? Here, here it is. Sell everything you have. I know, I know you didn't commit adultery in your life. Good job. Sell all you have, come follow me. Let's see if you're worshiping any false gods. First commandment. We're told in the text, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, as many of you in this room might be thinking right now, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The law stands over us. And I, and I think many of us need to take a moment and realize that the rich young ruler is you and me. We have this way about us of self-righteousness that we look down our nose at other people and we, we, we see the best in ourselves, and we say, I'm a pretty good person. 
As I talk to people on the street, that's their story. I never get anyone who tells me I'm a bad person. And that's one of the questions I ask. Do you think you're a good person? Yeah, overall, I'm pretty good. Why? Well, they haven't compared themselves to the image of Christ yet. <laughs> then they'd realize how bad they are, right? Every one of us looks at the perfect image of Christ, and we've fallen from it. And, and what is needed is a heart transfer, it's a heart change, because we bring this rich young ruler, self-religious, self-exaltating way about us where we say, I'm pretty good, I follow the laws, I'm not that bad a guy, God's got to be pretty pleased with me. If I were to die, God probably would say, man, I did good with you, come on, get in here. And Jesus looks at that heart, and he says, let's test that one. Go sell all you have, come follow me. You willing to do it? And everyone said, No. And who can be saved? Oh, but by the grace of Jesus. That self-exalting men and women like you and me, sinners who don't stand up to the law of God, who fail at every desire that God has for us because our heart's wrong. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Not anyone is good. No, not one. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. God sent his son so that those who would put their faith in him would have their sins forgiven, be imputed with new life, and begin for the first time to start living for the heart of the law, not the words and the legalistic living of the law in the first place. He's after your heart and only by placing your faith in Jesus can you begin that life. You can try to paste on living a life of following the law and it will leave you empty because when you compare yourself to Christ and you read the Sermon on the Mount, you go home and you feel empty because you know you've broken it all. We all do. Every one of us know we've broken it all. But who can be saved? Those who will receive the parachute. Jesus Christ has given his life, shed his blood, that when you stand on your judgment day and God puts the image of God in front of you and he says, how did you do? Did you live up to the standard? You'll say, no, but I'm covered by the blood of the lamb. And Jesus will say, absolutely. He did it all on your behalf. We get a transfer of heart. Jesus starts a new story in us. Every person who's a follower of Christ, that's your story, nothing less. Don't ever believe that you have a story that's less than that. You had failed to live up to God's standard and God in his righteousness offered Jesus on your behalf and you were given a new heart. You were given a new heart, heart surgery, spiritual heart surgery. Today we got to celebrate baptisms at the beach. 75 folks, 75, got baptized in Lake Michigan. <laughs> yeah, give that a round of applause. These are people who said, I've been changed by the blood of the lamb. I wanna show you what this morning was like for those who weren't able to be there. Go ahead and roll that video.